Drink and Read presents War and Peace, Volume 2, Part 2, Chapters 1 through 16. Forty-six thousand rubles and my life is still Trying to get over that man I almost killed Who cheated on my wife And I realized quickly and I knew I should That the world was made up of my messianic brotherhood of man Or whatever that means So I cry sometimes when I lie in my bed And I think of my best friend whose new wife is dead And I feel a little peculiar And then I'll wake in the morning and I'll step outside And I'll take a deep breath, new divorce, say hi And I'll say, Andre, what's going on? And I say, hey, yeah, 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 hey, yeah, yeah. I say, Andre, what's going on? Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to Drink and Read, a warm peace recap podcast for divorcees, mourners, and most importantly, Freemasons. Oh, sorry, did I say Freemasons? I meant four non-blonde fans. If you're joining us, we're starting Volume 2, Part 2 today after having 16 chapters full of love, loss, tons of balls, Dolokhov's missed shots, and Pierre regretting his relationship with Helene. Before we get there, of course, we've got two segments. First, the appendices. Um, The only thing that I made a mistake on after re-listening to last ep is that I referred to Novitsky as Nikolai... Um, Nikolai is Delikov's second when Novitsky in turn was. I do apologize. There are a lot of Nikolais in this book, um, especially with new Nikolushka, but I think that's Andre's middle name, Andre Nikolai Bolkonsky, and also his father's name. It's just a, a pass-me-down-hand-me-name situation. As to the podcast I was referring to last episode, the additional War and Peace podcast that's going chapter by chapter in far more detail, the podcast is known as The Hemingway List, and they've got way more subscribers and precedents than I'll ever hope to achieve. But if you do go check out that, remember who sent you, and you know, send some of those fans my way. Maybe they want a, a, a hip, rough, and dirty interpretation of War and Peace instead. Um, this is also referred to by A Year of War and Peace Reddit, which I advise checking out because I'm just passionate when people are passionate about this book, and I'm happy so many people are into it. Of course, this is Drink and Read, and I'm gonna need a drink, and it has no connection to the material we're gonna review today. I am having one of my favorite drinks, a nice cold diet lemon snapple, because peach was not available. So I don't know if the Freemasons would toast with a snapple, but I'm gonna do it today. Here, here. I think I'm all said and done, but of course remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Drink and Read on most podcasting platforms. The reviews and the subscriptions really help out, especially the five-star reviews. I know and understand how much time this could take for you, but please just shoot a good message my way. Um, And, 
Yeah, I'd be really appreciative. Thank you so much. Now that Nikolai's gambling debts had stunk up the room, let's get this roast to cookin'. Sixteen more chapters on the docket today, so we're gonna start with Volume 2, Part 2, Chapter 1. Pierre internalizes the world's most pondering questions. Pierre is still reeling from his fight with Helene, and he's traveling from Moscow to St. Petersburg, and it's a 500 or so mile journey by horse, so it's going to take some time. Back in the olden days, you would have to stop at these inns in order to change horses and rest, so it's a very long, tedious process. And during all of this same monotonous, take the suitcase, put it on the carriage, get the horses, stop at the inn, take the suitcase, repeat, 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 Pierre is lost in the sauce. He's daydreaming, he's in internalizing all of his problems, and not really accustomed to what's going on in the world around him. He's not paying any attention to that. Beautiful analogy here, when Pierre compares his mind to a strip screw, and that things aren't working properly now. Relatable. He's also minimizing and maximizing problems he's thinking about, like the postmaster is trying to get a little bit more money out of Pierre by saying, if you wait two hours and eat here, I'll have two fresh horses at the ready. Pierre's like, well, if I take those horses from someone else, someone else may need them. I almost took Dolokhov's life. Uh, Napoleon's trying to take all of Russia. So it's escalating in his mind. One thing that Pierre has come to terms with a little bit quicker than the younger war boys is everyone dies. Everyone dies, death is inevitable, it's going to happen. Then this postmaster brings in a little old dude and asks him to sit and wait next to Pierre, and Pierre has an uneasy feeling about this little old dude and knows that there's going to be a world-changing, perspective-based conversation coming from this old man sitting next to him, and lo and behold, in chapter two, that's exactly what happens. So this little old man turns to Pierre and goes, Oh, I have the pleasure of speaking with Count Bezikov, I presume. I've heard about everything. Your wife's affair, how you almost killed that dude, the bear-baiting incident. Your life's an open book to me. And... Dear readers, a lot of people are insinuating this is either a Tolstoy insert character or this character is literally God. Yes, it is that song, what if God were one of us? What if he was just a stranger at a roadhouse trying to wait for a horse to take him home? In literary terms, this little old dude acts almost as a mirror to Pierre's conscience. He's going to be bouncing ideas off Pierre and giving him a soundboard for externaling those internal ideas he's been having since the duel and his wife's situation. As you do do with strangers at the bus stop that you just meet, you get into debates on philosophy, religion, and ethics, and Pierre cracks his knuckles, chucks back his head, and goes, let's go. Pierre spies a death's head ring on this old guy's finger and goes, oh, you must be a Freemason. The old guy replies, yes, I am a Freemason, and that's essentially like a brotherhood, men's only club that dealt with philosophy, religion, and I'm sure a lot of other sketchy stuff. Um... I don't want to poke the bear of any conspiracy theorist out there, but um, Illuminati, maybe? But Pierre is totally into the Freemasons, and this conversation is going to give him a ticket in. This old man says to Pierre, Yo, I'm old, you're young, let me use my life experiences to try and help you out to the best of my abilities. And the first thing he admits to Pierre is that man cannot achieve things alone. They need collaboration of their fellow men in order to accomplish anything. The old man points out that Pierre is clearly unhappy and maybe he hasn't found a true connection with God yet. Pierre states that he doesn't really believe in God and the old man says, well, you don't really know him yet and that could be why you're unhappy. Maybe you should get to know God. 
The old man proposes to Pierre that God is in everything you do, even in your blasphemous talk, and that we wouldn't be talking about him if God doesn't exist. God is just someone that you haven't met yet. If you are introduced to a stranger, you can hardly know him without being, you know, more acquainted with him, getting to know him. And I don't mean to gender God in this, um, I'm very bad with pronouns, especially on the spot, so refer to God as they, she, whoever, if you do believe. I don't want to step on any beliefs in this. The next analogy used is that God is like a clockmaker. He makes this beautiful clock, and only those who understand the work and detail that go into this clock can truly appreciate it. If you gave this fabulous clock to a child with very little knowledge on the subject, they would just look at it and see a clock and not realize, like, oh, this took hours and hours and time and skill to make. He then turns to Pierre and asks him why he's unhappy. He's rich, he's educated, but what has he truly done for his life and himself? Pierre returns that he hates himself and doesn't appreciate his life. And the old man simply says, if you don't like it, then change it. Try something new, try something different. You need to try to establish yourself purely by your own merit. And that is crucial to support your fellow man. So your wife was cheating on another man, and he insulted you and you shot him, and now you hate yourself. Of course. You should be turning the other cheek and seeking how to better yourself through helping others. Which isn't a bad idea. The old man advises that Pierre clean his vessel, work on himself first in order to maintain this purity. So he's got to quit on the vices, he's got to stop getting angry at other people, and stop being so down on himself, in addition to supporting his fellow men through charity and works of goodness. So this debate and conversation is so effective towards Pierre that he now believes in God and wishes to become a Freemason. The old man is preparing to leave, his horses are ready, and Pierre goes, will you really leave me here without any more information? And this guy turns to Pierre and says, well, you know, you should look up this guy. Um, I'm going to give you his information, and if you want to learn more, I'll uh, the local library, please seek him out. The old man says to Pierre that this guy's name is Count Filarski, and you should seek him, but remember this. Only God can truly help people. We can support each other as human beings, but you will only find your salvation through God. The old dude departs, and Pierre is sitting there thinking like, yes, I will look into this more when I continue on my journey. And after he leaves, um, it's revealed by the postmaster that this traveler, this old man, was Osip Alexievich Bazdiv. And he, in turn, was actually a very famous proponent of the Freemasons. So, yay, Pierre got some help from an old dude. Maybe this will guide him on his way to a spiritual awakening. In Chapter 3, Pierre arrives with a clean conscience to St. Petersburg. Pierre is there for a week, and he is reading up on his new obsessions, being God and the Freemasons. He has a newly rekindled passion, which is adjacent to us being in quarantine, I figure. You know, some people like to make brioche bread, other people read mysticism books and try to discover God. As fortune would have it, Count Willarski, who was just recommended to Pierre in the last chapter as helping him as his inn into the Freemasons, arrives to his room and says, Due to your status and wealth, we can accelerate the process. You ready to go, buddy? We're off to the lodge. You're gonna get initiated, huh? Before they head off, Count Willarski has one final question for Pierre. Do you believe in God? And Pierre is giving the all, mm, mm, Yes, yes, I believe in God. Hmm, this answer seems passable. I guess we can go. Yeah.
away. So they head to this lodge and Pierre is blindfolded. It's kind of like a frat initiation ceremony, also kind of kinky. He doesn't know where he's at. As soon as Pierre steps in here, I get the retro Halloween party feelings like, oh, do you dare place your arm into this bowl of eyeballs that turns out to just be peeled grapes? <laughs> so Pierre, blindfolded, is led down a spooky hallway and abandoned alone. He hears a knocking at the door, unpeels his uh, blindfold off, and sees that there is a Bible sitting there along with a human skull. So, I don't know. In the corner of the same room, there's a coffin filled with bones. Ooh, scary! <laughs> Cindy, it's a fucking skeleton! It's just bones! So then a few guys in cloaks and black masks come in and just interrogate Pierre and say, like, what is your deadliest vice? What are you here for? Pierre comes to the conclusion that he's here for renewal and that his biggest vice is apparently women, even though we've only seen him with Helene and it wasn't the most healthy relationship for either of them. I think there's a lot of other vices you can go through, like cluelessness? Ignorance, maybe? But, uh, sure, women. Women. Pierre is going through this whole Q&A segment, and we find out that the Freemasons have seven tenets. The first being discretion, obedience, good morals, love of mankind, courage, generosity, and a love of death. Which seems like very good tenets to have, but they're also loosey-goosey, and it's almost like an amalgamation of superheroes or wannabe superheroes as they want to stop evil and fight crime. Uh, along with supporting their fellow brothers. <laughs> I mean, good on you for having a secret society that seems to be aimed at the positivity of humankind, but it really seems like this is a D&D &D group that's just sitting in their basement like, what can we do to make the world a better place? But who am I to know? I've never joined. Before Pierre passes to the next stage of the trial, they ask him, do you got any money or jewelry on you? You should take that off and give it to us. He looks down, he realizes that he only has his wedding ring, it doesn't really matter to him, so he takes it off, gives it to them. Now undress into this spooky robe while we go prepare the next challenge in the adjacent room. <laughs> in the next room, Pierre recognizes someone's voice being Count Velarsky. His sponsor is there to reaffirm his beliefs in the entire system. And I apologize for the background noise. I'm currently recording during a blizzard and someone's got their snowblower off. Is it Karen? Maybe? I do appreciate these Freemenses' uh, blend of... Christianity with the occult at the same time? I don't know if you can place both in same, but we get a very tarot card based uh, segment where Pierre realizes that as he's going through the questions that he's being asked and moving from place to place blindfolded, he's being referred to as the seeker, the sufferer, and the postulant, and that just makes me think of like the fool, the world, the hangman from the tarot cards. So there are parallels here. Pierre's blindfold is taken off, and he sees the men that are questioning him and recognizes a few of them from Anna Polovna's parties, from just high society, that these are men that he would not have expected to be in the Freemasons. Pierre is bowing down in front of these men, and they give him a few mystery mouse tools that will be helpful in his life later. First off, they give him a, a solid white apron. They say, try to keep this apron as pure as possible. It represents your soul, yada, yada, yada. The next thing, we're going to give you this trowel, which is a little tiny shovel, and you're going to use this shovel to dig and cultivate the world and your fellow brothers, yada, yada. And then they give him three pairs of gloves. This is a thing to always be thinking about the Freemasons as you wear them, ones for meetings, and then a pair of woman's gloves. 
And they say to Pierre, these women's gloves that you're going to give to the woman that you think is entirely blameless and you elect as your wife or aka your Lady Mason. Not really a fan of the ownership of the woman in this context, but do we know anyone who's entirely innocent and blameless as of this? So the ceremony ends with the final adage of take no revenge on your fellow brother, aka turn the other cheek when when wronged, and Pierre is like, oh boy, I'm part of a club. Now members, before you go, make sure you write down how much you make in this alms book. Pierre looks down and sees that he has way more money than these other members, but puts down the same amount because he feels guilty about that. So it's it's endearing. It's endearing to our dear old Pierre. At least he has a new hobby. Chapter 5, Pierre is sitting at home the next day, very excited, and he's trying to make out this image that was presented to him where God is fashioned as a square, and he I can only imagine him, like, turning the page 360 degrees and being like, yeah, it's a square, I don't really get it, and he has discovered that the news of his dual incident has probably reached the Sovereign, and that he should go off and just spend time at one of his other estates with the poor people to try and better himself. Before he does, who slinks into the room? It's Vasily. Back, 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 back again. Vasily is trying to make amends for Helene's actions and smooth things over while still seemingly... Um, pointing the blame at Pierre. Pierre is much wiser now, he sees it, and he doesn't want to cut Vasily off because Vasily keeps talking and not letting him, but he's also like, I have to deal with this this man who's taking advantage of me for far too long in a very affable and gentle way because I am now a Freemason and I can't beat the ever-loving crap out of him. Pierre decides if I want my father-in-law Vasily to go, I'm just gonna say, I didn't ask you to come here, can you please go? Vasily's like, oh, my child, what's wrong with you? You're actually speaking up to me, do you have a spine? And Pierre growls, go. Vasily's like, oh shit, well I better get on out of here. And Pierre, you know, pats himself on the back, prepares to go off to his country estates to spend time with the peasants. And Pierre gets a pen pal in the shape of one of his messianic brothers who's going to help him through the tenets. And if he has any questions, to just shoot him an email. Also, he's left them a lot of alms. So he's given up a lot of money, but Pierre is fully loaded. He's never going to run out of money entirely, at least in his own mind. Chapter 6, it's yet another salon with Anna Polovna. So cue the Gigi music with... The main topic of conversation is Pierre and Helene's a messy, messy relationship. Surprising me that uh, the blame isn't placed on Helene. She's playing the martyr act where she's like, oh yeah, my husband is a jealous monster and he, he shot this guy thinking that he was a lover, but truly I've never slept with anyone else. So she's doing a good job milking that and Pierre is in the bottom of everyone's books again. Anna Polovna's like, I told you all that Pierre, he's always interrupting my parties, not letting me get an aid, a word in edgewise. Oh, he's bad news, I tells you. He's a playboy corrupted by the money he inherited from his dead dad. Oh, hi, Pierre. The insult that we must take note of and implement in modern society post-haste is crack brain. I told you Pierre was a crack brain, didn't I? And the celebrity guest that Anna Polovna has at this day's soiree is none other than Boris Drubayet 
Metskoy, that's right, young Boris is making his way up in the ranks, he's handsome, and he's got commentary direct from the front lines to these rich people's ears. Nice to see that Mama Anna Mikhailovna has projected her son into a popular favor. All that sleuthing and scheming has paid off. In this, our little Boris has changed. He's entirely a military man now. He's keeping his opinions to himself and not sharing anything too overt to these people. He also reveals that he hasn't been to the Rostovs since Christmas and he doesn't really want to be associated with them anymore because now he's on the up and up in the military ranks where... Boris, sweetie, remember who, like, gave you a roof to live under, right? This this Rostov family, their generosity. Don't take that for granted. And at this party, sexy, sad Helene takes her eyes and puts them on Boris and says, hmm, you may be my next grand addition to the collection, and goes, you should really have dinner with me, Boris. Boris goes, well, certainly. And Anna uh, Polovna takes Boris aside and she's like, do you know who that lady's husband is? It's Pierre, and Pierre is a terrible no good awful person do not bring him up around her but make sure that she's a little bit happier maybe he'll be a better match for her Anna Polovna, I love a messy bitch who lives for the drama, but now is not the time. We have learned that Pierre is going through a mental crisis, and everything's not as peachy keen as it seems, and Helene is putting on an act because she really loves her brother. <gasps> there, I said it. Chapter 7 is a very short one that stars Hippolyte the Idiot trying to give a witty anecdote about Napoleon and the King of Prussia that doesn't come across well, and people are shocked by it, and Hippolyte is finally like, oh, maybe I am an idiot. Uh. It doesn't come across well, but Boris gives us another clue with how he's advanced so far in this society. He, when the joke is said, waits for the audience to either react in shock or to laugh and then follow suit with them. So I guess that's how you make it ahead here. And then Boris reveals that he is a frequent visitor of Helene Bezukhov's house. So we can only assume what they're going to be doing there, but Boris, don't fall for it. <laughs> And when he visits Helene, she snubs him off and pretends that she doesn't know who he is. And Boris falls for this immediately, playing hard to get, I see. I'll be back every single week, and Helene is enthralling, enrapturing young Boris. So pray for him. Chapter 8, we're back with the Bolkonskis, and we're going to see how they're coping after the loss of Lisa and the birth of Nikolushka. Andre has been in charge of hiring more people to come into the army, and that's been where he's devoting most of his time to get his mind off of raising a child and getting over the death of a loved one. Mary is helping to raise the baby Nikolushka and enjoying it. They frequently visit a memorial that's set up in a chapel nearby, and they comment on how the angel's face looks exactly like the dead Lisa, and Andre keeps a secret to himself, where the angel seems to be appearing to say, why would you do this to me? Me, who has never caused any pain in this world, why are you killing me so? So he's getting flashbacks to his wife's deathbed, which is never a good sign that he is fully mentally healed, nor will he ever be, but poor, poor Andre. Old Prince Bolkonski has given Andre his inheritance, along with a lavish estate that's nearby because they can't stand to live with one another. They just don't mesh well, and it's better for the both of them if they're in separate establishments. Andre is so affected from his near-death experience in war that he's vowed never to go to war again. He does not see the point in it, and good decision, Andre. I understand completely. 
Nikolushka has been sick for three days and Andre hasn't left his side since, so getting some dad brownie points there. Mary is also there with him and they're debating between the two of them, should we give the baby medicine or should we let him sleep it off? Mary's like, let him sleep, please. Andre's like, no, I'm not going to lose someone again. Give him the medicine, please. And they're they're nitpicking one another as brothers and sisters typical to, typically do. Um, Andre eventually goes like, okay, I'm tired, I need a break, and he picks up a letter from his dad, and his dad is describing this military victory that the Russians had over the French, and that Andre should get his ass back on a horse and go yell at some general in order to make this war end a little bit faster. Andre is thinking, no, I'm not doing that, I'm not leaving my child's side until he is better. More dad brownie points there, and he finally settles down to read a letter from Bilibin. So, prepare for more French incoming. Chapter 9, Bilibin casually dismantles the Russian army through a reading, because it's what? Fundamental. Bilibin is going to take the time to detail to Andre just how many ways the Russian army and the people that they're allying with are failing them miserably. First off, Russia has decided to ally itself with Prussia once more despite three betrayals and backstabs in recent memory. This does not seem like a good decision, but what do I know? I'm no general or I've never been in an army before. One of the higher-ups is very pissed that he didn't get a personalized letter from the Emperor, which we know if Emperor Alexander sends you a love note, then you're like the bee's knees for two weeks. Subject case point Nikolai. But it's not that big of a deal, honey. He tells the story about how these men are trying uselessly to get promoted just for the fame and glory of it all, and how these two army chiefs are in line for promotion, and they want to be the ones who secure said promotion, and they do this by avoiding each other completely with their armies in tow while walking around a river. So I can only imagine how awkward that must be with all these men following you, and you're just giving your uh, competition the cold shoulder when you're supposed to be on the same team worried about, you know, Napoleon's impending invasion. Andre has become a better man because he realizes that Bilibin is slightly exaggerating, but he still finds himself getting pissed off at the whole principle of this fighting thing. He then recalls that his child may is sick in the next room, runs in there, everyone's acting real awkward to him, and he assumes that the child is dead, but it turns out little Nikolushka is in fact getting better. He did a full 180. Crazy, because Andre has realized that his son is the most important thing in this world to him. And he is heartbroken to initially think that his son has died and then overwhelmed with joy, pure joy at seeing his son alive and doing well and he's all healthy and all that. So, you know, it's cute. I, I like it. I like this Andre. He needs to stick around a bit more. Chapter 10, Pierre, full of messianic free new age energy, has gone off to Kiev to visit one of his estates and talk with the stewards who run said estate and spend some time with the serfs. Now, if you don't know what a serf is, it is an indentured servant. This is unpaid for very hard, rigorous manual labor, so it is not a good thing. But Pierre is taking his new ideas and trying to make the world a better place. After one meeting with God, Pierre has decided to convince these stewards to give the workers, the serfs, some fair rights. So no more work for women, uh, the children should be seen to with their education, and there should be no more corporal punishment and the promise of eventual freedom. Now for the time period, very lofty goals, but we have to remember that Pierre is still a clueless big um, softy at heart, and these stewards are going to take advantage of him. He does not run this establishment, he is not here barely any time at all, so the stewards are laughing at Pierre behind his back. 
The head steward says, don't worry, y'all, I got this. I'm going to fool this buffoon, Pierre, because he can't see the nose in front of his face. He shows Pierre the accounting books, and Pierre's like, a lot of numbers. I didn't go to school for math or anything. What does that mean? Well, you see, we need money to make money on this estate, and without the free money that the serfs provide, it's going to be bubkiss. But we will take your rules to heart, and we will give them education and not allow the woman to work, and everything will work out. So just please go off and somewhere else. Pierre feels good for a time, but he doesn't realize that he's settling back into his old ways with soirees, parties, and, you know, drinking and dancing and spending the time doing useless things instead of bettering his fellow men. He goes, you know, I'm lacking in these um, tenants of masonry. I need to go back and see how my work has affected the serfs. So he goes back a little time later, and this head steward puts on an old show where, like, the people come up and they're like, wow, Pierre, you're so great. Our lives are so much better with that school over there. But little does he know that no one's in the school. There's no one running it, the serfs do not use it, um, they're not bettering themselves. It's described that nine-tenths of the estate are completely destitute, but Pierre was shown the good one-tenth. Now, Pierre doesn't know any better. He feels good for himself. He goes, oh, how easy it is to do such little good, and I can do even more for these people. So he has a good heart. He's just completely clueless with the way things are run. Hmm. And the head steward is even more of a douchebag because he's taking the funds for building this hospital, this church, this school from the serfs' own money. So in turn, they're on like a vicious cycle where the more they work, the more they fuel into projects that aren't going to help them get off the estate in any way. It's really sad, quite, if you think about it that way. And the steward turns to Pierre and goes, Who would want to leave this? Look how happy those uh, serfs are. Look, they're smiling. And Pierre is like, well, I guess if they're happy, I don't see any reason in changing their lifestyle anymore. Oh. Into chapter 11, where Pierre, in a precious state of mind, decides to go visit his friend, Andre, because the estate is nearby. So Pierre shows up to visit Andre and realizes that he's living in a kind of shabby estate. I mean, there's work still going on to it, but it's basically a cottage compared to the mansions that he is used to. And he surprises Andre for a visit, and Andre plays the part of his dad. He's in an extremely grumpy mood, um, does not want to see Pierre initially, but welcomes him because that's the polite thing to do in this society. And Pierre comments that Andre looks like he is dead inside, which isn't good. The initial conversation in between the pair isn't very stimulating. They're talking about their past life, what they're doing, and where they're going, the weather, etc. When Pierre asks Andre what are his future plans, Andre simply replies, I don't have any. So then the pair start philosophizing at one another. Pierre goes, I'm glad that I didn't wind up killing Dolokhov because it has done such good for my soul to discover Freemasonry and to help out my fellow men. Killing is immorally wrong. Andre replies, well, you know, I've killed multiple people and I don't think it's the worst thing that you can do. Frankly, I'm just living to avoid illness and old age and waiting for death to come and claim me. And Pierre is just sipping tea like, well, I guess that's nice. Pierre recommends, have you tried doing good for other people? And Andre says, well, yeah, that was my entire reason for joining the army, that I was bettering myself for the appreciation and the notice of the people who were higher up in me. But now I'm deciding to live with myself and my family first. Pierre retorts back, you're joking. There surely is nothing bad about trying to help out your fellow man. And Andre goes, oof, you'd get along with my sister Mary. You both are on the same religious kick, huh? 
Andre then lays down the gauntlet to Pierre, going, As human beings, none of us can decide what is truly good or evil for fellow human beings. It just is impossible. Second, the stuff that you're doing with the serfs, giving them education and pretending that they have freedom and that you've done well, is probably going to backfire, because once the serfs realize what they want is something that they cannot have it's going to throw off the whole system and truly pierre you're one man you cannot change the entirety of serfdom in your lifetime you're going to need a lot more tools at your effort it's a noble cause but i think you're barking up the wrong tree and thirdly i'm staying involved with the army for now because I want to keep an eye on my dad. He's part of my family. I know we don't see eye to eye, but I want to watch out for that old man because I know he cares about me. And throughout the conversation, both of these men are yelling at each other, but Pierre does see that Andre is getting a little bit more life and passion back into him by fighting, but he also comments that the death of Andre's wife has clearly changed him. And Pierre doesn't necessarily like this change entirely. But who are we to judge? I mean, we all have those friends where we argue with and where we get heated with, but it's out of passion and love and respect for one another's ideals, right? In Chapter 12, Pierre and Andre pop into a carriage and head over to the Bokonski estate, but this is prime time for some religious debate. Ding, ding, ding. The bell's rung. Put on your gloves. Pierre and Andre are looking out the carriage window, and Pierre sees Andre and says, I need to help this man. He's one of my friends. He has no soul. I'm going to tell him about the Freemasons. And he continues to do so and says that this is a service that has really changed his life in a matter of days, and that Andre should follow a similar path. Andre doesn't shoot down the idea, and in fact, he seems a little bit interested in it. They're then crossing a river by ferry, and Pierre breaks the silence with Andre and says, why don't you talk? And Andre puts it plainly. He goes, I don't understand how you can see the good in the world and be so motivated to live your life now for the betterment of human people when I have seen the atrocities of the world and it's put me off the entire human race. So tell me, like, what can I do to change this feeling I have? Pierre asks Andre, do you believe in life after death? And Andre reveals that he's consumed by guilt at not having made up with his wife before she passed and that there has to be a life after death because what else would he be suffering for in order to apologize to her and it's very sad and cerebral and poignant with these two pierre comments that the only way we can get through our hardships on earth is to believe in some kind of higher power and then they're just silent, and Andre is experiencing similar feelings to when he was at death's door just looking at the sky during the battle that almost took his life. In chapter 13, Pierre and Andre arrive to the Bokonski estate and find that Mary is hosting a traveling bunch of god worshippers. They're called god wanderers in the book, and they're basically people who go from place to place and just spread the word of god in religious fervor. Naturally, Andre doesn't like these. Uh, Mary's father is totally against it, but this is the only thing that she goes against her father and sees that these uh, wanderers are comfortable on their estate. They're invited to the home as long as they spread the word and help Mary understand more about her religious uh, beliefs. Andre turns to Pierre and says, Oh, you want to see religious fervor? Well, have I got a few people for you to meet. This will be totally entertaining. Mary is like, you didn't warn me. He was coming. This is extremely embarrassing. I would have prepared, but... 
You are welcome nonetheless. And these wanderers start telling Andre and Pierre stories about their beliefs, including the Virgin Mary and how once she weeped oil. Pierre and Andre don't believe this for a second, despite just having that religious talk, but maybe like their religion doesn't match up completely with the icons and supposed miracles that this group of people has seen, but Pierre feels bad about laughing at these people and asks one such of these wanderers, who goes by the name Pelageyushka, to expand on her tale and her beliefs. In chapter 14, Pierre listens to this old woman speak without interrupting her and understanding where her beliefs come from with more open eyes now. Mary and Andre leave the room. Mary returns after Pierre has finished listening to this woman speak and commends Pierre, says, You've always been very kind, and you know I've treated you as a brother my entire life. You're always welcome in this family. How do you find my brother? How do you see, what do you think's going on in that head of his? He's gone through a lot. I would love your opinion on it. Mary and Pierre discuss Andre's depression and say that it's his lack of activity that's making him depressed. He's in a rut. He's stuck in this house. He needs some sort of adventure, something to break the monotony of life. Old Prince Bolkonsky walks in and he's for once in a very good mood. He sees Pierre and he's like, Ah, oh, Pierre, I love this guy. I wish you were around more. Let's talk about war. And they have this conversation about how life would be boring and monotonous if there wasn't any war. Pierre can reply back without enraging Old Prince Bolkonsky. And that's good because we really haven't seen a character who possessed that quality yet. So it's a nice connection for Pierre. Pierre, for once, feels like a member of the family and is enjoying his time there. When it is time for him to go, the Bolkonskis gather after he has gone and only say good things about Pierre. So for once, a chapter ends on a positive note, and I feel good that Pierre feels like he has a home with the Bolkonskis and seems to add to the family dynamic there. In our final two chapters of the episode, we're going to deal with Nikolai Rostov going back to war after he owes all this money to Dolokhov from his gambling debts. So in chapter 15, Nikolai is back in war. He's living in absolute poverty because he has no money because daddy has paid off his debts to Dolokhov. And he's just seeing how the other half lives, which I think will be a great learning experience for young, eager Nikolai Rostov. He has promised his family that he's going to pay off his large debt in five years or less, and I'm glad that he has a good attitude about it. But he returns to an army that is ransacked and doesn't seem to notice it. Half the army has died due to famine and disease. The men have nothing to eat. They're feeding their horses straw from the neighbor's roofs, and they're just digging up random shit to eat for themselves. Not a pretty picture. Even with the soldiers not having adequate food or clothing to where business is carrying about as usual, the men are living together in dilapidated huts that they've either repurposed or taken from the people that used to live there, and Nikolai is once again living with Denisov, his buddy, and their friendship has not wavered. One day, Nikolai is trekking around and discovers an old Polish man, a young Polish woman, and a baby who are in need of help. The old man is sick, so Nikolai invites them back to try and recuperate to get back on their feet. 
um, just to see them through this tough ordeal. Of course, another officer is joking with Nikolai, like, well, you've got that pretty young woman there. It would be a shame if someone took advantage of that situation. Nikolai gets really pissed off. Denyazov has to step in and stop him from dueling this officer again. And Nikolai reveals that he has a big heart. Like, I, this woman is a stranger to me, but I treat her almost as my own sister. And Denyazov goes, you Rostovs are crazy. But that's why we love you, because you have such big hearts, even in this bleak time. Chapter 16, Nikolai and Denyazov are living in a trench and just loving life despite their hardships. They, I, they have a positive outlook despite the horrors going on around them. One day, Nikolai hears Denyazov arguing with a fellow officer, and then Denyazov rides off in a huff, and Nikolai wonders where Denyazov has come. It turns out that Denyazov went to go procure food for his soldiers um, that was actually meant to be delivered to the higher-ups. Instead, he stops the supply, gets the food, brings it to the soldiers who are overwhelmed with joy, but the higher-ups there, a certain captain is like, Denyazov, this shows uh, dishonor among those people who are higher ranking than you, and Denyazov said, our people are hungry, we need to feed them. And he is unfortunately relieved of the rank of captain, which is a very bad thing for good boy Denyazov. He's just trying to help out his fellow man. Denyazov is pissed because he was only doing that because the men were literally starving, and starving dead men aren't going to be able to fight in any way, shape, or form, but no one seems to realize that. The next day, he goes out in battle um, and gets a minor wound in his leg he's shot by a Frenchman. And whereas he comments that normally this wound wouldn't have put him out of commission, he elects to just go to the hospital instead of the front lines because he feels like this is an army without a leader at this point. With the turning of the page, this episode of Drink and Read has come to its end. We've seen our characters have some minor interactions, and next time it's going to be more or less of the same. We're going to see how Denyazov is doing at the hospital. Andre's going to get another spiritual awakening brought to you by young Natasha Rostov, and Pierre is going to find himself the leader of the Freemasons and try to make a reconnection with his wife. We can only guess how that's going to turn out, but it'll be exciting nonetheless. For the next podcast episode, we'll be tackling two different sections in Warm Peace, so we're going to continue with Volume 2, Part 2, Chapters 17 to 22, and then skip over to Part 3, Chapters 1 to 11. So that's another 16 chapters coming at you. Of course, if you like listening to the sound of my voice, feel free to check out my other podcast. I have Nightcaps at the Theater, where me and my friends Matthew Cabrera and Mark Zebro Jr. get a little drizzy drunk and watch a few good or bad movies with plenty of episodes in the vaults. And most recently, uh, celebrating our 100th episode, I have my friend Dan Ryan in a uh, podcast known as Anime Was Not a Mistake, where we took a look at anime and anime-adjacent films and give our two cents on them. And I would really, really love if you check that out. Of course, your daily drink and read reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe. The five-star ratings really help out, and just leave one comment if you can, if you have the time, I don't want to take any more time out of your day, but I really appreciate it because this is a passion project. I love War and Peace, and I just want to spread that love everywhere. Um, you can follow me, Jonathan Kwiatkowski, at Losing My Mind JK on Instagram, Drink and Read JK on Twitter, or follow this podcast on Drink and Read Pod at Instagram. 
Till next time, my friends, continue your soul searching and self-reflection in your many carriage rides, and remember to drink and read responsibly. Prochier! Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on drinkandreadpod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.